So welcome tonight. We begin tonight this new series that we call Wilderness Adventure. And uh, I think it's kind of appropriate that we do this series at this time uh, because here we are on this kind of wilderness journey into the Koinonia Room and uh, on this adventure in life, this adventure of faith. Uh, Now, specifically, what we're going to be talking about is the wilderness adventure of the Israelites. You know, we talked in uh, the month of June, we talked about uh, how how we, uh, uh, you know, we're following the, the, the events of the freedom of the, the slaves in, in Egypt. And Pastor Joe wrapped up that series for us last week. And now we move on to the wilderness where the Israelites go through all kinds of adventures that we might be able to relate to and look at ourselves and say, you know what, sometimes I feel like I'm in a wilderness And maybe, just maybe, if we look at what the Israelites are going through and what they learn about following God, we can learn a lot more for ourselves about what it means to follow Him and how to make it through our own wilderness adventure. Now, tonight, we begin with uh, this place that might seem kind of strange because the Lord and the Israelites have already been through quite a bit together when we catch up with them here in this place here tonight where uh, they were set free from slavery in Egypt, of course, and they experienced the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, that would be the start, really, of the wilderness adventure. And uh, then after the parting of the Red Sea, they, they experienced the miraculous giving of the manna and the quail to feed them in the wilderness. And they experienced the giving of water from a rock to quench their thirst. God and the Israelites have already been on quite a bit to, together, but tonight now what we, what we do is we catch up with them in this place where they are attacked by these people that are called the Amalekites. And in this moment, in this battle, in this crossroads that we that find them in, we can wind up with all of these great things that have occurred to the Israelites being completely wiped out so that nobody even remembers them. We wouldn't even know about them today depending upon this crossroads that, uh, that, that we meet up with them tonight. Now, now the Amalekites, who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites were a desert-dwelling people. They were nomadic. They, in other words, they lived in tents. They didn't leave behind cities and things like that for archaeologists to explore. So really, our record of the Amalekites really primarily comes from the Bible. And in the Bible, what we can see and what we know about the Amalekites is that these people were people who were nomadic. They lived in the desert. And the Israelites are out in the desert, and they are on the Amalekites' turf. So the Amalekites then rise up like they um, are some hornets, that somebody stepped in the hornet's nest there in, in the wilderness to attack the Israelites. They didn't like this one bit. The Amalekites were nomadic. They were barbarians. They were terrifying people. And they didn't fight right. They fighted weird. They, they, they came out of the rocks to attack people. Their name has been said to mean things like warlike, warlike, people of prey, and cavemen. Now, they're not exactly the kind of people, uh, by the sound of that, that most of us would probably invite over for dinner. They are wild people. First, they begin to pick off those Israelites who are lagging behind the rest of the group, people who are sick, people who are infirm, people who are tired, People who just simply can't keep up, you know. Uh, these are the people that they, that they go after first. 
And then they turn their attention to the main Israelite body. Now, when a battle like this was fought in those days, it was winner take all, which means that if the Amalekites win this battle, if somehow they cannot be turned back, then the way is clear to the main camp where the, uh, the women and the children are located, who will be attacked, many killed, some will become their slaves, others will be sold into slavery. It's winner take all. And Moses, the leader of the Israelites, is faced with a choice, what to do as the Amalekites attack. The, the choice that he had is fight or flight, you know, the, the choice that we have in our own lives oftentimes, fight or flight, and he chooses to fight. It says this in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And Joshua says, say what? Well, something like that, because Joshua, I mean, these are former slaves. They're great brickmakers, but they haven't got a clue at what, what this fighting is all about. They don't, they're not soldiers. <laughs> they don't know what that's all I mean, the last thing that the Egyptians would have allowed these slaves to carry would be a sword. I mean, they don't know about fighting. And here are these people who are professional fighting men coming out of the, out of the rocks, out of the hills, uh, seeming to rise up out of the ground with this terrifying shriek descending upon the Israelites. They witnessed, uh, the Israelites would have witnessed the Egyptian war machine, but uh, the, what they saw there probably would have been something that would have uh, actually caused them to be even more terrified by the Amalekites because the Egyptians fought in an organized manner. They were predictable. You could know what they were supposed to be doing. The Amalekites weren't. They were just all over the place. So how in the world could these untrained, unskilled former slaves possibly win the day when everything is on the line? Well, like others from the very beginning of time, the Israelites really at this moment wanted one thing. They wanted peace. They just wanted peace. Leave us alone. We just want to get to the promised land. Okay, I'm sorry we stepped in your hornet's nest. We just want to go, okay? They need and, uh, you know, people throughout time, though, have, have needed and searched for this thing called peace. Now, think about it. Think about it this way. You can pay tons of money to go on the dream vacation of a lifetime. You can have a magnificent, wonderful dream home. You can have a great, great, wonderful job. But if you're fighting with your spouse, if you have no peace with your kids, if the things of your past and the worries about the future are so troublesome to you, then all of these things really don't matter because the one thing that we all need when it comes right down to it and the one thing that all of those other things are an attempt to find is peace. So how do you find peace? How do you find peace? Along, you know, through life, you know, we're searching for peace and then along come the Amalekites. For the Israelites, it was literally the Amalekites. But for us, it's the figurative Amalekites, those things that would rob us of our peace, steal our joy, and leave us wondering, where do you find peace? How do you find it? Well, some try to be Superman. 
and to try to deal with things in life in such a way that it all depends upon them. And they need to have superhuman powers to be able to rise to the occasion and meet every need, win every battle, as though everything depended upon them and they couldn't rely on anybody else. Now, maybe we've learned over time that it's difficult sometimes to trust people. Maybe we've not uh, remembered that the Lord himself is trustworthy, and therefore we try to go through life like Superman. And sometimes that means going through life kind of like the Dutch boy. I, I don't know, you know, I've been there, you know, as, in, in this regard where, you know, the Dutch boy, the old story about the Dutch boy where the Dutch boy's got the dike and, and uh, uh, you know, so he put, puts his finger in, in the hole in the dike to try to prevent it from flooding the town, all right? And then now another hole springs up in the dike, so you've got to put your finger up there in that hole in the dike. And pretty soon, before you know it, there's so many holes springing up in the dike that you're running out of fingers and toes to be able to put in the holes in the dike. And, and, you know, you can look at this and say, for crying out loud, how much more can I possibly have to do here? You know, because the thought is, in order to have that peace, in order to win that day, I have to be Superman. Well, Moses learned a thing or two about this. It was his temptation to uh, go it alone, to do it alone. Uh, we live in a, a culture, a day and age now, when uh, people are kind of uh, this schizophrenic uh, thing going on where, where people know that they need other people, and yet they want to be portrayed as being this individual that really doesn't need anybody. But in reality, we do. Moses learned that he couldn't do it all alone. He needed the community of believers, and he needed the Lord. So back to Exodus, it says this in verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now what in the world is that all about? You know, here's Moses at the top of the hill. He's got the staff of God, and he raises the staff. And the people down below, the, the army down below, this ragtag bunch of former slaves who are trying to figure out on-the-job training what it means to be a soldier, look up on the hill and they see Moses with the staff of God being held high. Now, what would that do for you? This is the same staff, okay, that Moses used to touch the water of the Nile River to turn it red. This is the same staff that he threw down on the ground and became a snake. He picked it back up again to demonstrate God's power. This is the same staff that Moses used to touch the waters of the Red Sea so that they parted and the, the waters that fell back again on Pharaoh's soldiers. This is that staff that he's holding up high for everyone to see. But the staff itself did not have powers. Instead, it represented something more. It, re it represented the power of God that did all of these other things. So when Moses held up this staff, what, it was, what he was doing was allowing everyone to see that God is with them, that God is powerful, that God is present, and to remind them of what God had done in the past so that they will know that they don't have to go it alone. They will know that even though they are a bunch of ragtag slaves who don't know how to fight, that the battle is as good as won against these terrifying, fierce Amalekites because the staff represent, represented the power of God. 
Now, by holding up that staff before the Israelites, Moses was saying, this is it. This, the, you, 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 you're going to win the day. It's kind of like if we were to today, okay, that's a, that's a brass cross here. Normally, you know, we think of a cross as being of wood. So if we were to have somebody stand on a hillside when we are facing our difficulties, when we are facing our troubles, when we are facing those things where it seems as though peace is at a premium, it is gone. But they stood there with that staff, which is the staff of Christ, the cross of Christ on the hillside, so we can see that. Then we can see what God has done in the past and what God has stooped to and what God, the, the lengths to which God has gone to demonstrate His power, His miraculous intervention on our behalf to bring us peace. And from that, we can gain courage. This is what happened for the Israelites when they looked at the staff of Moses as he held that on the hillside. Back to Exodus. So uh, when Moses' hands grew tired, back in verse 12, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, which uh, they were doing because he was tired. Moses discovered that he wasn't Superman, or if he was Superman, he had this thing called kryptonite, you know? And the kryptonite was that he's mortal, he's human. He runs out of steam. Anybody been there? You know, he runs out of, you know, the, the resources to be able to achieve what he wanted to achieve. And in this case, he even runs out of the resources to be able to do something, which is to lift up God. And he needs some help. So Aaron and her, the church, held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword because his hands were held high. Now, this is the role of the church, okay? And maybe some of us here, I mean, if we were to be able to take the time tonight to be able to tell stories, we could tell stories about those times. I could tell stories about those times when the going got rough and peace seemed to be at a distant place, and yet the church was there. Now, other times, you know, uh, it's, it's been said sometimes that you know, sometimes, you know, Pastor Joe is our visitation pastor, and, and sometimes some people might think that we've got divine intervention and we know when somebody's in the hospital or something like that, but that's not the case. Even though we might have divine intervention, it might help to have somebody stand up and say, you know what, I can't go this alone. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ around me. I need you to hold me up right now because I don't think I can hold myself up right now. And the church is there for that. But we need to know that you need that so that we can help to hold you up. And, and there are times when maybe you're in the role of the Aaron and her role where maybe there's somebody who you come alongside and you hold them up in their hour of need, in their moment of difficulty when, when peace seems to be distant. And in that moment, we can recognize that we don't have to be Superman. Because we have one who has superpowers. And this is his church that comes alongside of us in that moment. Jesus didn't promise that we're going to go through life without difficulty or without problems. But he does provide a church family in which we are based so that we don't have to go it alone. So we can be like Moses 
with an Aaron and a Hur standing beside us. So now you've got a question to answer. Do you want peace? Or would you rather try to go through life pretending that you're Superman, that you're really the one in control, that you are like God? But if you want peace, it's important to recognize that Jesus already paid the price for peace. He said this in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But you don't want to come to that point where you know that. Because now it's hidden from your eyes. But the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. A.D. 70, 40 years later, after these words were uttered, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, built those siege walls against Jerusalem, and destroyed the city. Jesus prophesied about what would happen 40 years later. Why? Jesus said, because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to you because they did not recognize the one from whom real peace comes. It was by his power that the Amalekites were defeated. It's by his power that the Amalekites in our lives are defeated. It's by his power that you can have peace in your soul, in your life, with your past, with your future. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Why make sure Joshua hears it? Because Joshua was the one who led the Israelites into victory in this battle. He needs to know where this peace really came from. Because as soon as Moses is gone, he's going to, he's going to give the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. And Joshua is going to need to know for that day where peace really comes from. That it comes from the Lord. So, verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nissi. He said, for hand, uh, he said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. When armies go off to war, they carry banners with them so that people can see what king it is that they represent and serve, what country is it that they're from. And they carry banners so that they can see the various units and they can communicate with one another and they can organize and things like that. And what this is saying is that when Moses lifted up that, that, that staff and he was pointing to God, and when we lift up the cross, we are pointing to him and we're saying that he is our banner. He is our king. He is the one we represent. He is the one we serve. He is the one that gives us the reason for being here in the first place. He is the source of our peace. Because you don't have to be Superman. You don't have to pretend anymore because Jesus is here. Recognize the time of his coming, which is now. And in him, you will find peace. Amen.